Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to episode 1602, 1602. Yesterday, I talked to you just briefly about the Fannie Mae loan limit. Well, I should say the Freddie Mac Fannie Mae loan limit. These two usually kind of go in lockstep. As you know, these are the big agencies that become the secondary mortgage market, and they make the U.S. real estate market very special compared to other markets around the world because they create a lot more liquidity and a lot more velocity in the housing market. And boy, do we ever have a housing market with velocity nowadays. Wow. <laughs> I think you all know that, so we won't even we won't even go into that today. But now, this is uneven across the country because it is adjusted geographically. But most counties, and it goes county by county, most counties will see about a 7.5% increase in the loan limit. Frankly, I don't know why they think they needed to do this. I'm all for throwing a little more barbecue lighter or charcoal lighter, I should say, or gasoline on a fire to make it bigger. Sure, go for it. I mean, the market's already, this, this is like something you do when the market needs help, right? When the market needs help and you need to stimulate it. This is essentially another form of a stimulus, okay? Increasing these loan limits. And if you ask me, it's, it just wasn't necessary. I, I don't know why they did it, but you could argue that they're just adjusting to market prices. Prices have gone up. They got to increase the loan limits so that you don't have to go into a jumbo loan category you can stay in the conforming loan category and still buy a higher price property. So everybody out there, you know, loves it. Everybody's kind of thinking of themselves rather than the broader economy and what it means for the market, which is kind of what I'm trying to do. I'm kind of trying to think of the broader thing, the big picture, if you will. And most people are just thinking like, hey, what's in it for me? <laughs> so fine. It's it's good for me too. I'm just saying uh, it's not really necessary. And I think we've got a market that's already uh, at a fever pitch. Why, why are we raising the loan limits? So the usual suspects, uh, but not always, uh, get the highest loan limits. So for example, if you're in uh, New York or Los Angeles or, or one of the, the, the more expensive overpriced areas, if you're in San Francisco, then you'll see the highest conforming loan limit uh, range of $822,375 for single unit properties. And if you're in the lower priced areas, you'll see a limit of $548,250. 
and then you have a couple of steps in between there. But interestingly, in the low priced areas, which is most of the country, that $548,000 limit buys you substantially more house than the higher $822,000 limit does in some of these overpriced, cyclical, business-unfriendly, landlord-unfriendly, poorly run, disastrous markets. Not that I have an opinion about that or anything. (laughs) Okay, so there's your update on the loan limit increases that we will see next year. Okay, so uh, the Mortgage Bankers Association, that is the MBA, not to be confused with the master's degree in business administration, (laughs) the Mortgage Bankers Association, MBA, released revised estimates for the third and fourth quarters of 2020, but they also predicted a prediction. We love predictions, don't we? Yes, we do. Predictions are always kind of interesting. They predicted what will happen in terms of purchase volume, mortgage transactions that are purchase money loans as opposed to refi loans. A purchase money loan simply means that you're getting the loan, the mortgage, to purchase a property versus refinance a property. So they predicted that 2021 will see a record volume of purchase money loans, as if 2020 wasn't absolutely crazy enough the whole country, it seems like, is buying a house. And if they're not buying a house, they're refinancing a house. So they're forecasting an increase in purchase money loan originations to, you ready for this? 1.59 trillion, that's with a T, trillion dollars in volume, which would break the previous record of Now, everybody wants to look back to, are we in a bubble? Is it, you know, are we going to have another great recession? Well, the previous record in 2005 for that number was 1.51 trillion in purchase money volume, okay? Uh, So, and, and then refinancing will decline a little bit next year. That's their prediction. Now, you might be asking, how do they make a prediction like that? Well, Is it a prediction on interest rates? Now, our rich uncle Jerome Powell says they're going to keep rates low for quite a while, which is going to keep throwing gas on the fire, fuel on the fire, punching the punch bowl, candy, handing out candy, you know, whatever. They're going to keep doing that, and that's going to keep the market on fire. It's going to make houses appreciate more. It's going to make rents increase more, although probably not as much as the houses will appreciate, meaning the rent to value ratios, the RV ratios, will get even more out of whack. And investors entering the market next year will feel like, wow, I can't get a good rent to value ratio anymore. And they're right. Rents will go up a bit, but prices will go up more. So you should probably buy sooner rather than later and, you know, expand your portfolio as much as possible. Assuming you're in the building stage of your life, if you're in the stage where you've made all your money and you want to relax a little bit, then you just reap the benefits of the current portfolio you have, right? But one of the reasons 
the refi market might be decreasing a little bit is because with refinances, there's no urgency. It's just a matter of lowering your payment. Even if interest rates tick down a little more, which would be incredible, and even if they do that, it doesn't necessarily mean it's worth doing a refinance. So all the people, the millions of people that already refinanced, they don't need to do it again. People purchasing obviously need financing for their new home purchase. Now, also, you know what I like? Well, <laughs> sometimes I don't like it, but sometimes I like it, is when you're looking at an article online, I like to read the comments. Now, some of them are epically stupid, and you think, do these people get to vote? Really? <laughs> really dumb comments. But some of them are really smart, and some of them make you think. So this one will make you think a little bit. Not that big a deal, but maybe too much of a buildup. But here we go. All right. So, okay, you can stop now. Sound effect. <laughs> and some of those are a little too long, aren't they? Anyway, this comment on this particular article about the volume predicted for next year, Chance Man says, and that's the person's handle. I'm not sure that's their name, uh, but it says, good morning and thanks for the summary. I believe this sentence. For 2020, the MBA is estimating 3.9 trillion in mortgage originations, the highest since 2003 and 50% increase from 2019 should read as 3.39 trillion, not 3.9 trillion. Okay, so he's correcting their math. But what's amazing about that is that it's a 50% increase from 2019. Wow. I mean, people in the mortgage business are making money hand over fist. They are making tons of money now. We've talked a lot about this uneven recovery. And here's some bad news for you. This is really shows you that a lot of people are really suffering. I am looking at a chart, and these are this is data from the BLS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and it shows um, it's entitled Service Sector Struggles to Recover Lost Jobs. And so it says change in total non-farm employment in the U.S. between February and October of 2020 by industry. And this isn't showing all the industries. It's just showing the industries that are suffering. And uh, some of this is a little bit surprising to me. Actually, some of it is pretty surprising and some is not surprising at all. So the industries that are down, just ever so slightly down, utilities, mining and logging, financial activities, information, I don't know what that means. Everything, every industry is an information industry nowadays. Transportation and warehousing down uh, about, well, it's 0.27 million jobs down for transportation warehousing. That doesn't totally surprise me. Construction surprises me though. That's down a little more, 0.29 million, okay? So, uh, you know, 0.29 million construction because construction is an essential service and there's a lot of construction going on, but I would venture that those construction jobs lost are definitely not in housing. There's a massive labor shortage in housing labor, 
but all of the people that were building out office spaces, retail spaces, retail construction, new office construction, that's virtually, you know, non-existent. Nothing going on there. Nothing going on at all. In fact, like negative growth, obviously. So when you lump them all together, I guess construction's down slightly. Manufacturing, down 0.62 million. So more than half a million down in manufacturing. And I'll tell you, for someone who is looking to buy a new car, I have never had such a hard time buying a car. I mean, I go on the manufacturer's website, I spec out what I want, I deal with these car dealers and, and so forth, and it is a huge hassle to get what you want because these plants have been shut down and there's a shortage of vehicles. So real, real hassle there. Wholesale and retail trade down, no surprise there. Professional and business services down 1.15 million. That one surprises me and doesn't surprise me at the same time. I guess, you know, a lot of people call on offices. They go to the offices, they repair the copiers, they maintain the phone systems, the servers, all of this kind of stuff has gone to the cloud. So, you know, I can see that that's good now. The lawyers seem like they're doing pretty well. There's a lot more lawsuits with COVID and so forth, a lot more things to sue each other over. So <laughs> their business is good. Not necessarily a good thing for the overall economy, but it is what it is. Government down. 1.22 million jobs. Education and health services down. Kind of surprising when you put, why are they lumping those two together? But this one will be no surprise at all. Are you ready? The worst hit of all of them. This is down 3.49 million. So three and a half million jobs down. And this is ugly, folks. This is really, really bad. It is, yes, that is a bomb dropping on the leisure and hospitality industry. Leisure and hospitality. This is not a good time to be owning a hotel or to be in the travel business. So there you go. And, and by the way, all those stats I just shared, seasonally adjusted. So they do have some adjustment. Okay, now also Americans who are unsure of being able to pay rent. That's important to us as landlords, but here's the problem. When you look at surveys like this, they're almost always 100% or at least heavily weighted toward apartment dwellers rather than single family home dwellers. So that is problematic at the outset. Either way, it's not as bad as someone would, some would say or some might think, right? Percentage of U.S. adults who have the following confidence level. So this is just what they think. It's like consumer confidence. It's just their viewpoint of their ability to make next month's rent payment. And here's another problem with this chart. It doesn't give you any reference point. It does not answer the Jason Hartman question. What is the Jason Hartman question compared to what? And so there's no reference point of what it was last year or 10 years ago. So we don't know what to compare it with, but here's what they say. 12% of these renters, mostly apartment dwellers, of course, have no confidence in their ability to pay rent next month. 18% have slight confidence. 22% have moderate confidence. 
47% thankfully have high confidence. That's good. And 1% says they've already worked out a deal with their landlord to defer their payment. And that's uh, according to data collected for just a short time, short period, October 28th to November 9th, and that is the Household Pulse survey. All right, I got a bunch of other stuff to go into on an upcoming episode, but we have part two where we talk about Goodhart's Law today. So let's get into that part two of the episode as we talk uh, from yesterday about demographics and um, age distribution and all sorts of amazing stuff. So here we go with part two. Oh, wait! You know, I always almost forget, don't I? And I have to remind myself, many of you have asked about the Black Friday sale, what it includes, what's involved. Just go to pandemicinvesting.com slash Black Friday, pandemicinvesting.com slash Black Friday, and check out our Black Friday bundle deal with a whole bunch of great offers for you. All right, now our guest. Okay, so go on. You know, I'm looking at the table of contents. You cover a lot of things in this book. Let's switch gears and, and you know, grab a, another area that you want to cover. I just want to make sure we get all this out. Well, one of the one of the key things that uh, we get asked, and and you alluded to this uh, yourself, right? Which is that the tip of the spear or the blueprint for an aging society uh, has already been seen. Many argue in Japan. So Japan's been aging for a very long period of time. Like you were saying, the concerns are that they don't really have much immigration inward, so their population growth is really dwindling into nothing. And if all of that is true, why haven't we seen our thesis playing out there? Why have we seen in many cases? The opposite. And Charles and I, we've, we've looked at this topic and our argument is that the way Japan has been treated has been symptomatic of a lot of the problems that we see in the analysis of the global economy. It has been And when treated, you say, why don't you see your thesis playing out? You mean inflation, right? Correct. Okay. Inflation. Because, because Japan has huge debt levels, about 230% of GDP, and it has an aging population, but it also has, you know, it's really like the lost three decades, you know, I mean, not, not even two decades anymore. So why don't you see it playing out there? Yeah, actually, actually, it's interesting you say that. And let's use that as a starting point, right? I mean, the, the, the first point you'd look at is they really did have a lost decade. There's no doubt. After the asset price bubble burst, they really had a lost decade. But since then, they've had 1% GDP growth, which doesn't look fantastic at all. But when you consider that the population and the working age population has been falling and the workforce has been falling by 1%, the difference between the two, which is productivity, is 2% a year. If you offer 2% a year productivity growth to the advanced economies, they'd bite your hand off today. So they've right. done very well on that front. The second thing to keep in mind is Japan is not an autarkic society. There was no way that Japan was blocking off either the disinflationary forces or the impact of this massive labor supply shock at its borders. So Japan going into inflation while China was deflating the rest of the world is in incomprehensible. When we look at Japan and we look at it as a closed society and we say, well, this is what happened in Japan. They went into deflation because of its demography. What we're effectively doing is we are saying that Japanese corporates and, and uh, the policymakers there 
disregarded the rest of the world and they absolutely did not. One of our key contributions to that debate is finding new data and new evidence from Japan's own ministries that shows very clearly that Japan's corporate sector looked at the domestic economy and said, that's not where I want to invest. Where I do want to invest is in China, North Asia, Brazil, Poland. And indeed, if you look at what's been happening there, the ratio of overseas to domestic production, not only of manufacturing, but of employment, services, profit, everything has been increasing at a very steady pace for the last 30 years. So Japan behaved in a profit-maximizing manner outside. Within its economies, its labor force was treated, as we all know, very differently from the rest of the world. You could not really fire those with uh, employment for life contracts. So Japan moved them from manufacturing to services where you could better protect uh, their hours and they moved to part-time workers. So I think Japan, on our point of view, has been misdiagnosed and using that as a a roadmap for what is yet to come is an extremely misleading story, which is why we have market prices where they are right now, and they're about to be proven wrong. And when you say market prices, are you referring to the stock market? Uh, partly to a, to, to a large extent, I mean interest rates. So if you look at okay. where interest rates are, and this is the point you made earlier, which is that you know their, Japan's debt has skyrocketed and what has allowed them to remain that high, which is a point Charles has made many times, uh, is that the cost of servicing that debt has fallen to incredibly low levels. And so what we've seen for the future is everyone's expecting interest rates over the next 10, 20, 30 years are going to remain very low, which means there is no pressure on stock markets and the impact on currencies is unknown. If we are right, we're going to start with those interest rates being at the wrong level and all of the subsequent changes that will reverberate through the risky asset spectrum will then be a function of that initial change. And we've been living in a remarkably favorable time for capital. And with the result that what has happened is been debt ratios everywhere have gone up very, very sharply. But interest rates have fallen just as sharply. So debt service ratios have remained flat or even declined. So the burden of the debt has not been increasing. But interest rates can't go down anymore and are very likely to rise somewhat. Uh, in the aftermath of the, the pandemic and with the reduction in the working population that we see coming and with the greater protectionism, the end of globalization, the return of business to each country. I, one of the features of the COVID pandemic was that every country became even more national. They They all insisted on keeping their own drugs and personal protective equipment. The COVID pandemic has moved globalization even further backwards. The COVID pandemic has uh, really promoted the Trump agenda. Um, Candidate Trump back in 2015 and 16, you know, this is all the stuff that he was uh, talking about. And, you know, he's getting it through COVID, if not his own uh, efforts obviously. But, you know, I think there's some sense to that. I mean, countries should make their own PPE and some of their own things and their own vaccines. And, you know, some of that should be uh, done onshore. Uh, You know, this is just my personal opinion. We can't be dependent. You know, every country can't be totally dependent for emergency style needs on other trading partners that need them themselves. Right. And you, you, you have to be aware of the implications of that, because In the past with globalization, any employer could turn around to the workers 
and say, if you insist on having a higher wage, so be it, but we will move the production offshore and you, you will no longer have a job. That is no longer going to be the case. I'm, the effect of globalization and the massive upward supply shock in the labor force and the shift of labor out of manufacturing, where they were relatively well concentrated and, and unionized, uh, to the service economy, to the gig economy, has absolutely trashed the bargaining power of labor. Oh, I know. And the bargaining power of labor is going to come back. I think if you, uh, just to put Charles's point in a slightly different way, connecting to the initial comment you had is, is where, do we, where do we stop that story? If it is for national and public interest that you produce PP at home and disregard profit considerations, I would have no objection to that. But then you could take that story on to uh, a few other industries where you sure, could make yeah. similar it, arguments. It could be endless. And, yeah, you could right. rationalize that. I'm just exactly. saying to that's some where extent, that you know, up. it just seems logical that some of this, you know, you can't be just completely dependent. Of course. But, but look, that's a neither here nor there. That's just my opinion, okay? I, I could be wrong. <laughs> but, you know, what you, you've got a diagram in the book where you talk about stagflation. And I've predicted that that is the era in which we are moving into. I don't know if it'll be the 70s style stagflation, but I think we are going to see higher inflation. And I think we are going to see a, uh, a real shift in employment and, and so forth. You, you've alluded to it in kind of different ways. And I'm just wondering, do you think that's what we're coming into stagflation? And for the inflation component of that, you say inflation is coming. And I agree with you, by the way, how much like, can you put a number on that? And are you talking about U.S. when you say that or global or both? I think we'll be lucky if we can hold inflation to a rate of about four or five percent per annum. As an official number, like a CPI number, which most people believe that's understated, uh, you know. <laughs> well, it is at the moment. I mean, because of the shift in uh, the consumer basket, what people buy, the current CPI figures for inflation are almost meaningless and certainly underestimate the true rate of inflation at the moment. They're not by an enormous amount. Let me get an opinion from you on that. Uh, do you think the true rate of inflation is is 50% higher than the CPI? Is it double the CPI? What it depends on the, because if you have a CPI of zero. I mean, well, well, say the CPI is at their target rate of 2% when it is, okay? Well, the CPI uh, is not at 2%. Uh, I, I understand. But but just say it's two, then is it really three or is it really four? No, you know? it's probably a, around two. Okay. Um, and that's that. That's more in uh, in Europe. I'm not. I wouldn't like to be dogmatic about what the U.S. situation yeah. was. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. So, but but stagflation is that what we're coming into? The inflation, yes. The question of stag. I mean, we're in some ways we're quite optimistic in that we do think that productivity per worker is going to improve because in order to remain competitive. Manufacturers who are able to maintain an enormous profit margin by shifting everything to low-wage countries abroad will now have to invest in order to make the workers where unit wage costs are likely to rise more productive in order to, to, to cut, cut down on labor costs. So we think that productivity per worker will rise as it did in Japan. We think that investment will corporate investment will go back up 
and that productivity will recover. But we'll do very well if we do as well as Japan. And you talked about three lost decades. We think that given the demographic difficulties that Japan faced during the last two decades, they've actually done very well. And we will all, and that includes the US and the UK, be doing very well if we can increase our productivity per worker to the level that Japan has managed to do. Yeah. Look, yeah. Look. Well, J- Japan is impressive intellectually and technologically and in terms of ambition. I mean, their workers are extremely ambitious. They work very hard, very many hours in Japan. So, so fair enough. I was sort of including the demographic problem into the mix. And China, by the way, has a demographic problem coming up in a decade or so as well. So, you know, the one-child policy is uh, about to really rear its head. Go ahead, Manush. But I, I really want to make sure, and I know we've been going long. I want to make sure because I'd be totally remiss if I did not ask you a little bit more about Goodhart's Law. So I do want to get to that before you go. But uh, Manoj, you were going to say say something. Yeah, I I was going to say, I mean, if you think about it from an uh, econ 101 point of view, right? I mean, it's been a very long time since uh, since I taught that class. Uh, But if you think about it from that point of view, it's it's interesting to contrast it against something like the 70s stagflation, right? There, what you would get is a negative supply shock that would create a negative output gap. So you'd have uh, unemployment at high levels and you would get the inflationary impact. What we are arguing is different over here is that what you're getting with a declining labor force is that potential growth itself is going to come down. And real factors in our case, as we have argued, are the ones that are going to lead a nominal variable like inflation higher. So if you mean by stagflation that you're going to get lower growth than we've had in the past, that is absolutely right because inflation will be higher and growth will be lower. But it's not the kind that you get massive amounts of unemployment. You get reallocation of labor from one sector to the other. But overall, we think with productivity and employment, it will actually benefit workers not only from a social but from an economic point of view. Good. So the news is not all bad then, right? It's uh, good in some ways for sure, right? Correct. Okay. Okay. You want to wrap it up with Goodhart's Law? <laughs> okay. It's when the government, when the government or anybody in a position of power makes a relationship into a target, then the previous relationship will tend to break down. Let me give you an example, not from economics. Uh, but shall we say from education. Let's say that there is a pretty good relationship between somebody's score in mathematics and their overall ability to deal with uh, success in later life. So the, the government then targets a mathematical exam in order to try and raise standards. So you know, schools get graded on the result for the, uh, this particular maths exam. The result of that is that every school then effectively focuses on getting their students to pass that particular maths exam without necessarily having a grounding in a whole series of other kinds of important educational training or necessarily knowing much about maths outside the specific areas in which are going to be tested in the exam. As a result, what you would find is the prior relationship between mathematics ability as tested by this exam and subsequent success in life would collapse. 
Making something into a target changes the way everybody behaves. Uh, it yeah. changes the way the people who are subject to the target behave, and it even changes the way that the authorities themselves behave. Um, again, to take an example, governments don't like it if the targets they have set are not met. So very frequently, they will actually change the way that things are scored in order to ensure that a sufficient proportion of the, of the population on, at doing this uh, actually right. achieves the target itself. Yeah, fasc so, fascinating. That, that's, that's really excellent. You know, it almost makes me call to mind two, uh, I'm sure you'll say unrelated things because I think they are unrelated, but, you know, they're kind of in the... I want to say like the double slit experiment and Hawthorne's law or the Hawthorne experiment, I guess I should say. I don't know if that became like a law, if you will. But, you know, that you whenever you you make something a thing, then the focus changes and it skews it. It, it, it abuses it. Right. That indicator. Right. Yeah. That's very interesting. Very interesting. You remember the Westinghouse experiment? No, Where I don't they, know that one. Tell me. Well, it's a lovely one. Westinghouse experiment was it was a factory, and they tried to see what made the workers more productive. Uh -huh. And they changed the. Oh, that was the lighting, right? Yeah, or they and then they changed the period of the tea break, and they changed the period of the of the break to go to the John, right. and so yeah. on and so on. Every time they changed something, mm -hmm. productivity went up. And then they thought, anyway, I wonder what's happening. And they started changing it the other way. Productivity still went up. Mm -hmm. And what they discovered was that what made productivity go up was that actually the people felt that others were interested in them. Right. And because they were interested in them, they, they worked actually harder. And, and because they were being observed, mm -hmm. that changed their behavior. Yeah. So the very fact of, of undertaking changes and setting targets changes behavior and therefore changes the relationship. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very good stuff. Do you have a website you want to give out? Or, I mean, the book is available, of course, in all the usual places. And it looks great, by the way. You've got so many charts and graphs in here. I, I just, I love that. Did you have a, a website you'd like to share or anything? We don't have a website. I think we're happy with just the book being uh, pushed out there. Okay, good. Glad you liked and, it. And the book is called The Great Demographic Reversal, Aging yep. Societies, Waning Inequality, and an Inflation Revival. Charles Goodhart and Manoj Pradhan. So thank you so much for joining us today. Very interesting discussion. Thank you, too. Pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, hartmanmedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own. And if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode.